All right, if you have a Bible, please, would you can open it to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have one, we have church Bibles at the back. You're welcome to run and grab one. It's very helpful to have one open in front of you. I'm going to read the same passage in a few minutes that we read last week, Ephesians 3, verse 1 to 13. Let me pray, and then we're going to, to jump in. Father, we thank you that in opening your word, Lord, you promise that, Lord, your living word can come and bring powerful transformation in our lives. Lord, and we're praying that we'll see things we haven't seen, that we'll be moved in new ways, Lord, to be your servants, to be your children, to serve you, to love you, to be dedicated to your work in the world. Father, come, we pray. Give us eyes and ears to see and to hear, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Ephesians 3 begins in this way. For this reason, I, Paul. And as I explained last week, there is a, a strange pause there because he never completes the thought In fact, he seems to take up that same idea halfway through the chapter in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And I was explaining to you that it seems to have been his intention to to tell them about his prayer for them as a means of encouraging them. But he almost catches himself mid-thought when he realizes that he has to address this great problem, the deepest source of discouragement that they, they would have been facing, which was the fact that Paul was writing to them from prison. So he says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And he rounds off his thought in verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So he begins to delve into this problem of the fact that he's in prison and finishes off the thought 13 verses later by saying, don't lose heart. Why would they have been in danger of losing heart? And I I think the answer is that because as believers in this new religion, as it seemed, certainly was something new bursting onto the scene, all of them had paid a price to become followers of Jesus. It's the same today to different extents, depending on your context and family background and so on. Everybody, though, has to pay a price to some degree to be a Christ follower. And even if that is only to do with your internal Um, wars and battles with your own self because to follow Christ means by definition to put the self to death. But they'd also encountered an enormous amount of pushback and hostility often from the culture in which they were situated. It must have meant professional cost, business cost. It would have been they would have experienced something of the kind of um, being considered outsiders in their communities. And therefore, to know that your leader, the man who had perhaps led many of them to faith and had founded the church, to know that he was in prison must have been a deep source of discouragement to them, at least potentially so. And they, of course, also just had hopes for the future of the church. When you give your life to something, you pay a price, you're invested, aren't you? And you want the thing to flourish and to succeed and to thrive. And therefore, to know that the most significant person that any of them had met within the Christian scene, to know that he was now in prison, would have meant extreme demoralization, I think, for them. And Paul, I think, in these verses is wanting to answer that concern. He says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, 
And he begins to give them a few answers to encourage them to the problem of him being in prison that will lead to him saying, don't lose heart. The first is he speaks about the fact that the message of the gospel is now on the loose, so to speak. It's let loose, and there's no stopping this living, powerful, multiplying message. So from verse 2, he says, Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. He's saying something very definite has changed. There was a time when what you knew about Jesus was not known by anybody. And now the mystery has been revealed. And I think in a sense he's saying, listen, that makes me a lot less necessary to the future of this thing. The message is out there. And then he begins to talk and reflect upon his own ministry. Listen to what he says there from verse 7. He says, of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And I I take his point there to be that if God had made Paul a minister... And if Paul, in his own words, was the least of all the saints, and yet God powerfully used him, and all of it was the working of God's grace, and Paul's saying, I'm not necessary to the future of this. Me being in prison doesn't alter things. God is the one in control, and he is raising up people. The message is out. God's ministers are those raised up by him. And then he brings it all to a kind of rousing conclusion here from verse 10 when he talks about the movement, the unstoppable movement of the church. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Not through me, the apostle, not through the first generation of preachers, but through the church, through you, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. That last idea is the one I want us to dwell on. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. I think Paul's great confidence was that he had been one of the starters of this extraordinary, unstoppable movement, the Church of Jesus Christ. One of the early church fathers who lived about a century after Paul, a man called Tertullian, who was facing in his own day the same kinds of persecution and the kind of hurt and harm that was being inflicted upon the church across the empire. He kind of taunts those opposing authorities. He says this, he says, But nothing whatever is accomplished by your cruelties, each more exquisite than the last. It is the bait that wins men for our school. We multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. The more you hurt us, the more people are drawn to us. 
the more you mow us down, the more we multiply. It's a really a paradoxical reality and I think can only be explained by the supernatural working of God in and through his people. And that was Paul's confidence as he sits in his prison cell. He's saying it doesn't depend on me because it's you now and you are the church and it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. He's saying, I think, in effect, that a handover has taken place. There was a time when the truth about Jesus was known by just a handful of people. But Christ gave them a commission to go into the world and teach and preach. And having accomplished that, now the gospel is let loose among the people of God, which is why Paul can describe the church in another letter of his, 1 Timothy, as being the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now this structure has gone up. There are walls and pillars upholding and establishing what we believe to be true and no power can overcome the invincible thing that is the church of Jesus, protected as it is by Christ himself. And I think this is what gave Paul incredible peace. He is imprisoned on a number of occasions and of course his final imprisonment led to his ultimate execution. And it always seems a pity, doesn't it, when somebody who's making an outsized impact with their life, their life has ended prematurely. But as he is sitting in that prison cell, in his final imprisonment in Rome, he writes a letter to Timothy, the second letter to Timothy, which is the final letter we have of Paul's in the New Testament. And he is very aware that this is nearing the end for him. But there is no hint of pity. There's a strong sense of charge as he writes to Timothy, preach the word, he says to him, in season and out of season. And he has these similar kind of exhortations to him. But he's comforted. And one of the things he says in that letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, he says, To Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. You can imprison me, but you cannot imprison the gospel. It cannot be suppressed. It cannot be held back. It cannot be stopped because it is true. And the truth has a way of forcing its way forward into people's minds and hearts and attention by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that was Paul's great confidence, the gospel is out there, and it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. The question I want to ask with you is, how does the mission of God proceed in and through the church, and how does it proceed in and through you? And it seems to me that that is a vital question to ask. When you call Jesus Lord of your life, he enlists you to his service. He puts a weapon in your hand. He puts you in uniform. He puts boots on your feet. And he calls and commands you to fall in line and to be part of his mission in the world. A Christian who is walking around in circles uncertain of what they're here on earth to accomplish is someone who simply hasn't listened to Jesus. The Lord Jesus calls you to action. And I want to ask, 
How does the mission of God continue in and through us? How is it that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known? And I want to give you a few answers, all of them revolving around this message of the gospel. The first answer is this, that it has to do with us receiving the gospel. The idea I want you to fix in your head here is that from generation to generation, there is a transmission that takes place as the gospel is passed on from one generation to another. And that's implicit in all that Paul's saying here. He's saying that the gospel was made known, revealed to his holy apostles and prophets, but now it's in you. And it seems to me to be a very apt and pertinent image to think of those relay races that you've seen in the Olympics, how an athlete will be going, going full hell for leather down the track until they have in their sights the next teammate and they place the baton in their hands and then they can crash out of the race and watch their teammate speed off into the distance. And that seems to me to be an image of how the gospel has, has been passed on from generation to generation from this first generation of the apostles and has reached us at the cost and expense and sacrifice of tens of thousands and even millions of people who went before us. It's passed on from generation to generation. It's part of the reason why Paul's writing the letter, don't forget, to codify and instruct and teach Christians. This is what you must know. The great danger, of course, as in a relay race, is that there can be a fumbling in the handover process you imagine, put your mind back to the Olympic Games that you will have seen, the various athletic contests that you've seen. Now, Great Britain has often competed at the highest levels with some of the fastest sprinters in the world. And I took a particular interest through my childhood and would always be interested in the athletics during, you know, every four years as the Olympics came around. And time and time again, we were disappointed by teams who, though they were made up of very individually fast runners, seemed to lack the ability to hand something from one person to another without dropping it on the floor. And so Olympic Games after Olympic Games, the British crashed out in disqualification, despite being favorites or contenders for medals. It happened again. There was another fumbling that took place um, even this summer, in the women's 4 by 400 meters, the English team in the, in the Commonwealth Games, the women were the fastest on the track. It looked like they'd won the gold medal, and then they replayed the footage and discovered that one of them had put her foot outside of the lines and thus disqualified the team. And there is this sense in which when you think about the transmission from one generation to another... The highest duty that we have, the first duty that we have as Christians, is to, to be able to accurately comprehend, receive, treasure, cherish the gospel that, we have, that has been guarded for us by every generation that has preceded us. And you ask, well, how, how are we called then to receive the gospel well? And I think the first answer I want to give on that is that it has to do with us fostering a deep sense of gratitude an appreciation for the treasure that we possess. There was a time, remember, when Christ was not known. Not known to us individually and not known to the nations. It's what's described in that passage in Isaiah 9 
It says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. There was a time when all of us were in darkness. We're in a kind of moral darkness where we could not see right from wrong. We're in the darkness of the isolation of being separated from the God who loves us so that you experience the deepest form of existential angst and loneliness. We're in the darkness of fear, knowing that when we die, we have to face whatever is yet to come and yet with no real confidence of what lies beyond the grave. Fear even in this life of not being able to control our own destinies. Darkness inside us, darkness all around us. And this is why one of the words that best captures what it means to encounter Jesus and what Jesus has meant to the world and coming into the world is that he is the light. He calls himself the light of the world. But when you're living in the light, it can be difficult to remember what it was like in the dark. And part of what Paul's doing in this passage in Ephesians 3 is he's reminding them of the privilege in which they stand. Now, it doesn't come here in full order, but you can see all the elements of this transmission of the gospel from eternity in the mind of God through to full um, revelation to God's people. And it goes like this. He says in verse 9 that his call was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So at one time he's saying the gospel was a mind, an idea, a plan in the mind of the living God. No living soul knew anything of this plan. And then he says that this plan became real. It was filled out and enfleshed because he says in verse 11 that the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, this word realized, he means that it, it, it took on form what was just an idea became real. It's the same thing that happens when you formulate a plan in your mind and eventually you put it into action. A thing you want to make or a thing you want to accomplish, that's when it's realized. And when Jesus came into the world, took on flesh, the Son of God took on flesh, he says the, the plan that was for eternity hidden in the mind of God was realized in our midst. Christ came among us. Then he says that this was then revealed to that first generation of Christ's followers who saw for the first time what Jesus had accomplished for the world by dying on the cross for our sins to bring us new life and liberty, rising from the dead so that you can have confidence that you will live forever with God. And he says in verse 5 that that was not known in other generations as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Then he says it was preached Describes this in the 8th verse, To me, though in the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And now where is the gospel? It's in all of us. Something that existed only in the mind of God in eternity past is now our treasured possession. And my encouragement to you is this, that the first calling of any Christian is to recognize and receive and understand the treasure that is yours to live in the gratitude and appreciation of what it is. It is a human problem that very often we fail to 
appreciate the day-to-day comforts of life that we enjoy that previous generations didn't enjoy. As I come to church every Sunday, I don't necessarily give thought to this, but I am basically very thankful that we now live in the age of toothpaste. That there is, as you turn and meet and greet one another, as you turn, as I encourage you before the message, that you're not breathing gases over one another. I'm grateful that we live in the age of antibiotics because I know that I might not be here if it were not for them. I certainly would have lost an eye at one stage in my life. My wife probably wouldn't be here. I'm grateful that many of you are here who wouldn't be here because we live in the age of antibiotics. We live in the age of anesthetic. We live in the age of third wave coffee. And all these things have made our lives much better and how glum we can approach life when we forget the benefits that we have on a day-to-day basis. How much more to live in the light of Jesus? This side of history. And that's part of what Paul's saying here. It's come to light, friends. And I think our first calling of Christians is to receive that with the deepest appreciation and gratitude. When these early believers were received a letter like this, the first thing that they would do was they would begin copying it and multiplying and distributing the copies of what Paul had written because they saw it as their treasured possession. I once had the experience of going to, and by the way, that's the only reason we have the New Testament, because of the diligence and passionate conservation and interest that the early Christians took in these writings. It is a miracle that you have this book in your possession. I once had the privilege of visiting Lebanon, and we met there a lady from New Zealand who is a very radical woman who has spent most of her life in pioneering missionary contexts as a single woman. At the time, I think was in her 50s. She must be in her 60s by now and is still active and passionately engaged with Christ's work. And one of the things that she did, she had all kinds of ways of reaching the lost in Lebanon. There were, there were maids from, who were shipped in from all around the world who lived basically as prisoners in, in some of the wealthier accommodations there. And she would, she would find ways of putting in their hands an audio Bible and an MP3 player. before smartphones. Were, were, were ubiquitous, and she'd, she'd throw them through windows or find ways of winching them up or give them to a, a guard at the door who would pass it on to the, through, post it through the letterbox. She found ways of getting these multi-language Bibles into people's hands, these audio Bibles. Another thing she did was that there were these tourists who'd come on buses from Iran into Lebanon, and it's, it's illegal to, to possess and to sell uh, the Bible, the New Testament in Iran, um, because of the oppression of the, 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 the government there. But nevertheless, there's an interest in Christianity and there's an interest in the New Testament. The Quran, in fact, instructs Muslims to read the New Testament. And yet, very often, it can be challenging to, to possess one. And as these tourists would come into Beirut and they would do the kind of tourist route, they'd all be unbundled from the coach and they'd all walk out on the corniche there in Beirut, this lady would bring with her a bag full of Farsi New Testaments. And as she approached them, there would be a bit of caution, but she'd start to speak to them in Farsi and say, this is a free, a New Testament and it's free. This is the gospel and it's free. 
And after one or two would take them, then the rest would descend and grab them. And these, the ladies in particular would be dressed head to toe in black gowns. And they, as in grabbing the Bible, it would quickly disappear into the gown, never to be seen by any other human eyes ever again. But in that way, she had sent, and I do not exaggerate, tens of thousands of, of New Testaments back into Iran without ever having herself to cross the border. And we had the joy of being involved in one of these, these uh, distribution sessions, whatever you want to call it. It was fun. And just thinking, wow, this is, this is such a privilege. And then I contrast that with the fact that if you walk into any hotel across Britain, you'll find a Gideon Bible unused and unread in the drawer there. I wish that people would, 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 were trying to steal those things and take them home out of desperation for the word of God. But yet when this thing is in our possession, isn't it the case that very often we neglect and take it for granted? Our first call is to receive this as the treasure that it is the word of God. And part of that is appreciation and gratitude. And another part of that is a deep application of your time, talents, energies, and intellect to a deeper understanding with whatever gifting God has given you to apply what you have for the purpose of a deeper understanding of this gospel. This is what Paul himself had done. Do you remember at the beginning of this passage, he said to us in verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. And I want to just correct, if you have any misunderstanding of what he means there, let me just correct our thinking on that. When Paul says that the gospel was made known to him by revelation, he does not mean that like Neo from the Matrix, he sat in a chair and a plug went into the back of his brain and he jerked for a bit and then suddenly he, would, he, he emerged and says, I know Kung Fu. It didn't happen like that. Paul did have a critical crisis encounter with Jesus on the Damascus road that immediately turned his mind and heart around so that he said, Christ is Lord and he's not the pretender that I thought he was. But what followed after that was that then Paul, the expert in the Hebrew scriptures, who'd spent his whole childhood up to that point immersed in them and memorized no doubt vast portions of them, what he then had to do was unravel and undo and rework his entire understanding of Scripture in the light of this great truth, Jesus is alive. He talks about this in Galatians chapter 1, where he tells us that... He says in Galatians 1, that when he who had set me free set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, that's his experience on the Damascus road, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And it seems there's some, there's some disagreement about the timelines in Paul's life, but Scholars understand that what Paul did was that he, having had this, this confusing encounter with Jesus that meant that he could no longer trust his own reasoning and arguments against Christ, and now compelled to rethink everything that he thought he knew about his faith, he then had to rebuild his faith from the roots up. And he went into the wilderness and meditated and thought and studied in order to come to a better and true understanding of the gospel. 
And I'm saying that to you, friends, because I want you to understand that even the Apostle Paul, who claims to have had this revelation from God directly by the Spirit, even he understood the necessity of using his mind, the God-given faculties that he'd received from God, to a deeper understanding and appreciation of his faith. And not only that, but that hunger and that appetite and that desire did not disappear once he thought he'd mastered the thing. He spends the rest of his life in pursuit of Christ. He says in Philippians 3 that he wants nothing but to know Christ. And then again in 2 Timothy, when you read his final words that are recorded in the New Testament, the last words that we have of Paul that were, that were written, he's sitting in prison. He's writing to Timothy. He's asking Timothy for various things. And he says to, this, he says to him, when you come, because Timothy was going to go and visit Paul in prison, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now, Paul's time is up. There's, there's very little he can contribute to the work of God at this point. But his appetite hasn't diminished. He wants to know Christ. He wants his scrolls or parchments of the scriptures and whatever books he had that were his. And he wants to delve into truth more deeply. C.H. Spurgeon, who preached not far from here, said of this in, in a sermon, he said, Paul is inspired, yet he wants books. He's been preaching at least for 30 years, and yet he wants books. He'd seen the Lord, and yet he wants books. He'd had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants books. He'd been caught up into the third heaven and had heard things which it was unlawful for a man to utter, yet he wants books. He'd written the major part of the New Testament, and yet he wants books. And hidden in here, easy to miss, is this exhortation to you, believer. He said in the third verse that the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, he says, you can perceive or comprehend or come to a deeper understanding of my insight into the mystery of Christ. And it is my conviction that the moment that you encounter Jesus as a believer, your first call is to begin the lifelong, and I will say even eternity-long journey of pursuing the deeper, truer, purer, more satisfying knowledge of the Lord who loves you. That is receiving the gospel. The Lord wants to fill your heart with his expansive majesty and glory and fuel you for the journey with a captivation with his goodness and his love for you. He wants you to know him. And you may have found that your Christian life has been cruising or plateaued or stuttered or stalled. And the problem is that you haven't awakened your appetites. Hunger after him, friend. This is what it means to receive the gospel. And it's not just something for your personal benefit. This is a solemn duty. 
because we are the guardians of this message. It lives in us. It takes possession of us. It changes our lives from the inside out. And I urge you, Christian, never satisfy with the, be satisfied with the rudiments, the ABCs. My three-year-old's just learning his ABCs and can count to about five, I think, often in reverse order or incorrect ordering. You know, this is child's play. What we rather want to do is, is go to the depths. That's what it means to receive the gospel. Let me add more briefly a couple more things. That beyond receiving the gospel, we're also called to enjoy it. The mission of God continues in and through the church, as Paul says, that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. And I understand what he's saying there, that the church now has become the display of the gospel. There he says it's to angels and demons, to the high heavenlies, to the spiritual powers. But we know also that the church has a mission and a calling to display the gospel to a watching world. In other words, that they can look at us and see the goodness of God. And if the gospel is good news, it therefore follows that the goodness of the good news should be seen and displayed in our lives together and individually, right? That there is something visible. That when this message has gotten into you and into us, there are ways in which it can be seen. There are ways in which we manifest the gospel. And the great tragedy is when we fail to do so, when the gospel doesn't become sort of enfleshed in the way that we live and act, when we fail really to enjoy it. Now, what do I mean? Let me just remind you that there are two aspects of the gospel that Paul emphasizes in this letter, and they come here again in these verses. The first is the communal gospel. It's what Paul described in the second half of chapter 2 when he talked about us being one new man in Christ, that Christ has brought us from different places, people, groups, tribes, races, to be one new man in him. The unity that you experience in Christ is evidence that Christ is Lord to a watching world. And he says it again here in the sixth verse. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's what I call the communal gospel. It means that Christ has called you and he's put you in a family with dignity, with sonship, belonging, so that every one of us has that equality and dignity before a loving father. That is part of the gospel. It's the first dimension. The second dimension is the personal experience you have of God, the transforming power of the gospel in Christ, forgiving you, cleansing you, and giving you a place at the table before the Father. It's what he describes here in verse 11 and 12 when he said it was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. What he's describing there is the transition that takes place in the life of the believer, that once you are clothed in shame aware of your sin, aware of your unworthiness, and aware of the, the rightful judgment of God because of the wickedness of your heart before you met Jesus. And then he cleansed you and forgave you. 
not through any work that you've done, but as a gift of his grace, because he took your sin upon himself, atoned for your sin upon the cross, and made you righteous in God's sight. And you had no part to play in that, friend. And that means that your, your soul is healed. The communal gospel of healed relationship and the individual gospel of healed souls. And yet here, in my observation, is the great tragedy. That if, even though the church is called to be that organization or organism through which the manifold wisdom of God is made known, very often in history, the church has failed in its primary duty to live out this gospel. We failed on both fronts. We failed to be a people who were united because of Christ, loving across boundaries and differences and rather being cut apart by factions and hatreds and malice. And of course, I want no part of that. We must seek by the grace of God to enjoy the gospel by demonstrating the love that we have for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's why you can't be an anonymous individual Christian because part of the way you live out the gospel in your life is through the visible devotion that you have to the people of God in selfless love and service. It's part of your calling, friend. Come out of the shadows. Come out of anonymity. Come out of isolation. Love the church, the bride of Christ. That's the communal gospel and how it has to take shape in our lives. But also we've fallen on the other front. That even though we should be the happiest people on earth, Christians have for far too long had a reputation as those who are the most miserable. Because even though we preach a gospel of grace, we live as though we are under the heaviness of the law. with an agony of soul, the condemnation of accusation. Whenever you're experiencing that, the enemy is getting the upper hand. And the moment the Bible tells us that you come to the Lord in, in repentance, his acceptance smothers you with love. The Father is running towards you before you even think of repenting. And therefore, the default for the Christian should not be one of constant, perpetual misery because of your failure, but rather the relishing of the goodness and the love of God, as it's described here, that now we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. What's being described there is the, is the believer who stands upright in God's presence because they know that even though they are not worthy, Christ has said, you are mine. And that should become visible on your face. It makes you happy. I don't want to be insensitive to the reality that we go through seasons and challenges and sufferings in life that damage and affect our experience of joy. What I am saying is that at the, at the very foundation of your being is the knowledge that you are loved, that you are accepted, and that you belong to the Father. When the gospel is fleshed out in these two ways, a people who love each other and who confidently stand before God as those accepted in Christ, 
then we are a manifestation of the wisdom of God. That is enjoying the gospel. And it means that we don't need to resort to worldly means of sharing this thing with others. We don't need to indulge in marketing like the corporations who often get caught out for lying with their false marketing. We don't need to resort to underhanded guilt manipulation and pressure like the the climate fanatics and the more extreme vegetarians. We can instead, we can instead be content in our joy in Christ and know that it has an inherent attraction and appeal because what we have is not available anywhere else. Friend, the gospel cannot only be something you you grasp intellectually. It must also be something that you grasp experientially. You receive it. You enjoy it. These are the first two primary, most important duties of the Christian life. Now, beyond that, I, I do believe, and it is my conviction that the Christians are then called to share the gospel proactively, to be on mission with Christ. But it's interesting, isn't it, that in this passage, Paul doesn't go there. He does, of course, paint us a vision of his own example, which I think is instructive to us. He talks about how he is called to preach the gospel. And you and I are called into the mission of God. I think we're also called to share the gospel in whatever capacity with whatever means God has given us. He talks about his own sufferings for Christ. There he was, writing from a prison cell. He says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. And Christ himself said that in many, in sense, that is a mark of the authenticity of your faith, a willingness to suffer for him. He said it in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And he says, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. When your life is strangled by people-pleasing, it is impossible to bear a true witness to the Lord who saved you, and you become ashamed of him because he's not popular. Christ wants to liberate your tongue so that you can, you can speak about what you know and you'll be willing to experience whatever hostility may come on the back of that, just as Paul himself did. Most importantly, you see that Paul was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says that it was This grace was given him by the working of his power. He felt the energy and the power of God giving him success in ministry as he traveled from place to place. Sometimes that actually didn't look like success, not by my reading in the book of Acts. When you see him being kicked out of towns and stoned and on the run, and he says, this is the working of God's power. So that ought to at least recalibrate our understanding of what what success looks like in sharing the gospel. But nevertheless, he planted churches, he went places, he accomplished things. And he also says to us that we have become a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit lives in you. And so, friend, I do believe that you and I are called proactively into the same mission that Paul was involved in, to be those who share the gospel. And part of the the calling then is that every Christian has become an evangelist when you've become a follower of Jesus. Jesus says, don't lose your saltiness. 
Don't hide your light under a basket. There is some exhortation and challenge that's implicit in all that Paul's saying here. But as much as I believe that to be true, and I do believe that to be true, I still think that the first duties are the most important. To devote your life to the adoration of Christ, the receiving the gospel, and enjoying it, standing in it. It seems to me that those who are most likely to share Christ with others are those who most treasure him in their day-to-day walk. There's no point berating a miserable Christian to share Christ because what are they sharing? And so the call and the invitation is to live out this gospel in your own life and experience together as a fellowship and in your personal experience of knowing God with boldness and confidence, having access to him by faith. Does this describe you, friend? Have you dedicated your heart and mind to the deeper knowledge of Jesus? Do you relish him in your day-to-day life? Do you savor time with him? Are you discovering more of him in his word and in whatever ways and means you have of understanding him more deeply? Do you confidently come before him in prayer and experience the liberty of being a child of God in which the condemnation and the accusation of Satan is lifted off you and you stand there uncondemned and happy? Whatever else may happen in your world, you are accepted. Do these things, do they characterize your Christian walk? That is the great plea, the invitation, the summons, the challenge, the exhortation of what Paul wanted to see in the believers and what I am calling for in us, friends. May Christ be seen in us. Let's bow our heads and pray. I want to, in a moment, invite you to participate in communion where we are going to eat the bread and drink the wine. Just as you might sip wine and reflect on its characteristics, the flavor notes, the color and the smell as it, and the taste as it touches your palate. So we are called to savor Jesus. To relish that this mystery has been made known to us. We're his. A mystery kept hidden for ages in God, now revealed and preached so that you are a follower. You may experience all kinds of suffering and setback in your in your life. You may stumble and fall in all kinds of ways. But the greatest dignity and privilege has been put upon you when you belong to Jesus. And it's in that vein that we must eat and drink. Step into the joy of ours in Christ. Father, we thank you that we belong to you. 
And I pray, Lord, that the same infectious obsession that lived in the Apostle Paul's heart that compelled him to travel, to write, to preach, and to suffer. I pray that something of that infectious obsession would live in us too. That we would be as captivated by you. That we want to know you, Lord. We see your surpassing worth and enjoy you for all that you are. Draw near to us now, Lord, as we worship, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.